Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm doing a Ask Me Anything style podcast. I reached out to the subscribers of the website and Twitter to see if there were any questions that I could answer. I received a lot of really high quality questions, and I'm looking forward to answering them. Before I get into that, I just wanted to give a brief overview of this site and this project. You might be listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or one of the other platforms. So I wanted to give a little overview of the actual website. So all the content that I generate is on my website, www.securityanalysis.org. On the website, I took Warren Buffett's advice of start with the A's and set out on a project to evaluate a company in depth every week, then organize my research into an article. So every week, I pick a new company and I evaluate its moat, its competitive position, its financial quality, and its current valuation. The goal is to build up a watch list of wonderful companies. And I buy them when they reach attractive valuations. In addition to the write-ups of companies, I also provide total transparency into my portfolio. And I write about when I buy and sell these companies. I trade pretty infrequently, but I post alerts when I do and post regular updates on my performance and how the companies in the portfolio are performing. In addition to that written content, subscribers get access to my podcast. They And paid subscribers get early access to my podcast. So on the podcast, I answer questions from subscribers and I interview investors. I first release the episodes behind a paywall for two weeks and my paid subscribers get access on my website to those episodes. After two weeks, they go wide, and that's when you see them on all the different platforms. For the interviews, my goal is to learn, and I hope that helps you learn as well. I have guests on the podcast from all kinds of different perspectives and strategies, and I learn something new from all of them. So I hope you get the same kind of value. I, I usually walk away from every interview with something new that I've learned or something that I need to think about. If you sign up for the free version of my website, you'll get alerts when I post an article and you'll get an email when there's there's a new podcast that's out there with a description of what's in the podcast and what we discuss. Also want to note, I don't use any advertisers. The only way I make money from this project is via my paid subscriptions so I like this. It gives me total autonomy to write what I want to have, the guests on that I want to have, and not have to cater to any advertisers. So for those of you who subscribe, thank you for your support. That's it for my little commercial for today. And now I'll move on to the questions that I received from everybody on the website and from Twitter. So here's the first question. What is the best way to build wealth for a normal individual with a nine to five job that doesn't have time to sit and do very complex analysis of stocks. Okay, so I think the best way to build wealth for a normal individual with a nine to five job is by 
dollar cost averaging into index funds or ETFs. Nick Majuli, who I had on the podcast, had just a great book about this called Just Keep Buying, basically about how you can get rich from slowly and steadily investing a portion of your earnings over time. And you don't have to be any kind of stock picking genius to do that. And frankly, most active managers and most active investors don't outperform the market. A good example of that is the SPIVA data, which shows that 90%, over 90% of active managers do not outperform the market. You could also look at the hedge funds from the Buffett bet. Those guys are like the best and the brightest hedge fund managers around. And they're they didn't only underperform the market, but they had an average annual return of less than 3% after fees, which is pretty atrocious. So if the best and the brightest can't beat the market, most of us probably can't. I'm trying to beat the market. I, I think it's a it's a good project. It's a fun thing to do. Hopefully I can get some results, but I understand that the odds are pretty much stacked against me. So if you have zero interest in it, knowing that the odds are so stacked against you, it's probably something that isn't isn't worth your time and you should probably own some ETFs and index funds. So you can tinker and get more complex with what kind of index funds you're picking. There's a lot of different options. You could do value tilts, you could do international, you could focus on specific sectors, you could add in some alternative assets like treasuries and gold. It's up to you how how far you want to go with it. A good collection of kind of index portfolios to choose from are those sampled at the portfoliocharts.com website. Tyler, who I also had on this website, is runs that website. And there's a lot of great different approaches to asset allocation that you'll you'll find on there. If you don't want to get into all that and you're just looking for in kind of an all-stock one-stop shop, pretty good option is Vanguard's VT ETF. That gives you access to all the stocks around the world on a market cap weighted basis. And I would bet that over time, it's going to outperform most active managers' net of fees. Next question. It seems like a lot of businesses expanded margins in 2019 to 2023. Retailers and industrials is what I have been checking out. We are seeing cracks in retail margins, Dollar General and Target. Thoughts on if this is the tip of the iceberg, does margin contraction start in retail and trickle through the system? It seems like most stocks are still underwritten for continued elevated margins. Personally, I think the situation is ripe for some type of downturn, for some type of reversion to the mean and margins. The Fed has aggressively increased interest rates and the yield curve is significantly inverted. That's usually a sign that at some point over the next couple of years, we'll face a significant recession. That also means that there's going to be significant pressure on margins and the trouble we're seeing in companies like Dollar General and Target might just be the beginning and it could trickle down through other companies. With that said, the timing of a downturn is extremely difficult to predict. It's also extremely difficult to predict how the market will react to a downturn. The fact that Dollar General is in a nearly 60% drawdown is a sign that the market may have already sniffed out a recession and a lot of more cyclical companies could present compelling value. Personally, I always operate like a downturn can happen tomorrow. So that's why I focus on stocks with reasonable valuations, moats, low debt levels, and some past evidence that they can resist recessions. So a portfolio of those kind of companies will survive a downturn. 
and at least I know they will survive and won't cause a permanent loss of capital. Trying to actually predict these things is extremely difficult. But with that said, I think you're probably right. We're probably in for some pain after after the boom that we've seen over the last few years. Next question. To be in the top 10% of US households by income, you need to make $190,000 a year. Is this higher or lower than you expected? So people have wildly off-base assumptions about income and wealth in the United States. A funny thing about Americans is that pretty much everyone thinks they're middle class, even if they're not. People can have top 1% incomes and they'll say that they're middle class. And that's why it's really important to actually look at the data and figure out what's true and what's not. And the average income in the United States is about 69000 190000 that seems reasonable to be in the top 10%. I've seen different data suggesting it's around 150000 but the point remains, most people's assumptions are just way off base. There are people earning 150, 190,000, and they probably don't think of themselves as wealthy, but objectively looking at the data, they are. And looking at those stats can help put those things into perspective. In particular, it puts into perspective some of the wild assumptions people have about what you need to live in the United States and how much you need in your portfolio to retire. The way I think about it is if your average American can survive on $69,000, why do you need a five or $10 million portfolio? Like a lot of people say, 4% of $5 million is $200,000 a year, which is a top 10% income. That should be more than enough for anyone. And if they can't survive on that, well, maybe they need to rein in their expenses. And there are certainly differences in cost of living in different areas, but hey, it's always an option to move, especially if you're retired and you don't need a job there. So yeah, I think those are some interesting statistics to look at. Next question, what are your thoughts on payment companies like PayPal and Adyen? Number two, what are your thoughts on retail companies like Dollar General, Ulta, and Tractor Supply? So I don't know much about Adyen. I don't own it and I haven't profiled it. I'll have to take a closer look at it. I am long PayPal. Currently, the stock looks very cheap to me. The narrative around it is that payments are very competitive and PayPal is going to lose ground to alternatives like Apple Pay. But I don't see this actually forming within the financial results. Top line revenues are still growing. PayPal is reporting that the user count is stable. Transaction volumes are actually increasing. And it seems to me like PayPal is a fundamentally sound business. What I think is happening with the stock is that in 2020 and 2021, you had a basically a bubble and that's deflating. Back then, PayPal was trading at 80 times EBIT to enterprise or enterprise value to EBIT. And that was just simply absurd. So now it's down to 11 times, which is pretty reasonable. I continue to hold it. I think it's a decent company. And I think a lot of the pessimism around it is pretty overblown. Dollar General is looking like it's turning into an enticing opportunity. The market is concerned about signs of a recession that they're seeing in Dollar General's results. The market also is concerned that Dollar General's growth is going to slow down. Dollar General's growth path over the last decade has been pretty much to focus on rural areas. In other words, go to a rural town where the nearest Walmart or the nearest big box store is far, far away. And then they can kind of monopolize business in that rural area. But the issue is they've 
been pretty saturated in those rural areas. So now they're expanding into other concepts and trying to go into more suburban areas. And that kind of deviates from their core competency, which is making the market pretty nervous. With that said, I think it's a high quality company. I'm interested in owning it. Haven't done it yet. We'll definitely post an alert on the website if I do choose to buy it, but we'll see what happens. As for Tractor Supply and Alta, I think both are also under pressure due to recession worries. I'm long both companies. For both of them, I think that their moats are intact. Ultra continues to be a destination for cosmetics and beauty products, and their in-store salons are also attracting a significant amount of traffic. The nice thing about cosmetics, beauty supplies, and salon services is a lot of this stuff is something that's pretty recession-resistant. People still need their haircut and still need makeup. When the economy is bad, they might adjust their spending a little bit around the margins, but for the most part, that's a pretty solid business. Tractor supply, same thing. If you own animals, they need food, whether the economy is good or whether it's not. They're a pretty niche retailer focusing on that rural lifestyle. And I don't see any evidence that that mode is being eroded, so I'm, I'm comfortable holding it. And like I said earlier, whether we actually have a recession is up in the air. What I'm confident is I own companies that should do well if I hold them for a long time and I'm trying to get them at decent valuations. Next question, how do you approach or see general hedging, be it in equities, bonds, portfolio overall for tail risk, anything for hedging? Basically, if you don't hedge or so, have a guest to cover the topic into more detail. So my perception of hedging is that it doesn't really work. And I might be off base in saying that, but most of the stuff works pretty simply. If there's a big crash, if there's a big event, you make a ton of money. But over time, it's almost like insurance, like it turns into an expense. You're paying for insurance against a crash in the stock or a crash in the overall market. And over a long period of time, you wind up paying more for that throughout like a bull market than you make in the actual crash. So there are some tail risk guys that make money because they're not just doing it blindly and they're not just doing it mechanically. That's really because they've predicted past crashes. But the question remains open. Are they going to be able to predict the next one? They all claim they can, but I think investors should be wary of such claims. No one has a functional crystal ball in my experience that's consistent. You might have predicted 07, 09, but have you been able to predict anything that's happened since then? The other issue is what if prices decline amid low volatility? So a lot of this focuses on futures that are related to volatility. And what if stocks crash without some violent event that's unexpected? What if it's kind of orderly sell down? That's kind of what happened in 2022. And a lot of these funds didn't do particularly well. Another part of the problem is that there aren't a lot of good vehicles and funds for DIY investors. So a lot of the vehicles and funds, first of all, don't have a long history. So we can't really evaluate objectively how they would react in different situations like 2008 or 1987. Those are the kind of events you'd be worried about. And we don't know how exactly they're going to perform during those events. Oftentimes, these vehicles have a large fee that goes along with it, which as we know, fees degrades your investment, degrade your investment performance over time. 
On top of that, they can result in some weird tax consequences, and you might get like a K-1, which are a pain in the butt to deal with when you're doing your taxes. If you're DIYing it and you're not buying like one of these actual funds, and you're actually out there buying these contracts yourself, trying to hedge your portfolio, that can be straight up dangerous. Personally, I think it's messing around with it. It's like trying to do a little bit of heroin. <laughs> Eventually, you're going to try to use this, these contracts to actually speculate and actually try to predict when the market is going to crash. I, I don't think most people are going to stick to it and do it in some type of mechanical way as insurance. I think eventually you're probably going to see some macro headline or read something in the newspaper or see something on CNBC where you will start to think that you're George Soros and you're going to try to predict a market crash and inevitably you'll get that wrong and you're dealing with some very volatile and complex instruments to do that. My attitude is that if you're worried about volatility, if you're worried about crashes, just own less stocks. Accept a lower rate of return. There's nothing wrong with that. But the idea that there's some magic way that you can avoid these crashes, I think is kind of like wishful thinking. All of this said, I might be wrong. I'm open to being wrong. I've had people in the podcast before from different perspectives on this. I will definitely try to get a guest that can maybe present an alternate point of view to me and maybe change my mind. But for now, I, that's my perception of that. Next question, what's your approach to a taxable brokerage account? Stocks get good tax treatment, but do you want to be all in stocks when you might need the money from that account? Income from U.S. treasuries are deductible from state taxes, but taxes ordinary income. So personally, what I do is I keep all of my stock picking in retirement accounts. So the portfolio that I'm tracking on this website is a retirement account. Reason for that is I expect turnover with my portfolio, and I like to keep all of that turnover shielded from taxes. So I write about owning stocks for 10 years as like kind of an intellectual exercise, but in most cases, the value is going to be realized a lot quicker than 10 years. The stock will probably go up 100, 200% or whatever in a couple of years, and then you have to think about actually selling it. And when you sell it, you have to face some taxes. So I try to keep that, all of that individual stock activity in my actual retirement accounts. For my own taxable accounts, I stick to my asset allocation strategy with ETFs. ETFs are great for tax purposes because I won't have to pay taxes until I actually sell the ETF or get a dividend. And that will be a long, long, long time in the future. Meanwhile, I don't plan on selling any of them. So I'm comfortable with mostly doing ETFs in my taxable accounts. I like taxable accounts. They give me some flexibility. If I were to encounter some kind of major expense or job loss, it's an option to dig into those ETFs and withdraw money. Hopefully, I won't enter a situation where I have to do that, but I definitely keep that in mind, and I like ETFs in a taxable account for that purpose. You mentioned U.S. Treasuries, so I own them as part of my emergency fund. I keep basically six months of worth of cash in a high-yield savings account, so I could tap into it immediately if I needed. If an emergency popped up today, I could get that cash. And then on top of that, I have two blocks of uh, rolling treasuries that mature every six months. So 
one block matures six months from now, the next block matures six months from then. So all in all, basically, I have a year and a half worth of cash. So if I lost my job or I had some kind of major problem, I know that I'm solid for at least a year and a half. And then if things went beyond that, I've got my ETFs in, in taxable accounts. Next question, have the risks in Disney been priced in after the price drop? So I profiled Disney on the Substack before. My conclusion was that it's not a good company anymore. Their linear networks TV business is probably in secular decline. TV viewership is declining. Even interest in watching sports on TV is actually in decline. So they're probably in a long-term secular decline. Disney is trying to replace that with streaming. But the problem is streaming is not as good of a business, the kind of lucrative returns on capital that you got from the linear networks business. Personally, I try to restrict my universe to wonderful businesses so I can get the valuation a little bit wrong. And Disney is simply not the kind of that kind of business anymore. Disney is something where you, if you're going to do it, it's basically a trade and you need to get the business, you need to get the valuation and the timing of that trade right. And that's not something I do anymore. And what I mean by this is that Disney isn't necessarily a bad investment. It might work out as a kind of like a short-term value play. The markets might be too pessimistic about it. But at the same time, that's just not the game I play. I want to own exceptional businesses. And my conclusion is that Disney is no longer an exceptional business. Possible that maybe Iger can turn it around, but I think the odds of that working out are, are pretty stretched. So next question, it seems like someone in Berkshire, maybe Todd or Ted, is nibbling on alcohol stocks like Bud and Diageo. Could that be a sector to look for good companies at depressed prices? So I have to take a closer look at the alcohol stocks. So far, I've profiled one of them at the security analysis website. I profiled Brown Foreman. I concluded that it was an exceptional business. And I'm going to have to look into Bud and Diageo in the future. I'll probably do full write-ups on them on the website. So on the surface, Bud strikes me as a poor business. The 10-year EPS Kager is actually negative. Their average ROIC over the last decade is also very low at 3.6%. So that's not something that should even cover their cost of capital. If I had to guess what's going on with them is they're facing increased competition from smaller craft breweries. Back in the day when Miller and Bud were the only games in town, they basically printed money, but that era is over with. A lot of that actually came from a bill that was passed in the 1970s, which loosened up regulations. And then over the decades, you've seen more breweries pop up and it's basically kind of eroding slowly but surely the moat for those kind of big commercial beer companies. So I'm not sure how they get out of that. But like I said, that's just my superficial impression. I'll do a deeper dive into it and try to make up my mind on that one. Diageo looks like a much better business and it's at a reasonable price. Just pulling it up in quick FS. It's got an enterprise multiple of 17.6. That's okay for, for a business that's that's really good and posts high returns on capital. 
and has some decent growth prospects in a moat. Their average ROIC over the last 10 years is 12.3%. That's pretty good. They've been able to consistently grow. So overall, I think spirits are a better business than beer and they command more premium pricing. So they also have stronger levels of customer loyalty. Next question, is puristic value a strategy non-suitable to most investors owing to long stretches of underperformance as well as the need to actively sell businesses once they reach an approximation of intrinsic value? So historically, pure value strategies post the best returns, but they're very hard for most investors to implement. The first problem with it is behavioral. So you're going to be strongly tempted to weed out the worst of the bunch, but often the worst of the bunch offer the best returns. And it's very difficult to look at a bucket of cheap companies and figure out which one is going to be the best performing. You can do this as an intellectual exercise on your own. Pull up a screen, try to figure out hey, what's going to be the best performing company in this screen? Revisit it in a year or two, and you'll almost inevitably get it wrong. So the other issue is if you're doing like a deeper value strategy in a taxable account, it's going to incur a lot of taxes because a pure value strategy is going to have turnover. Every time you sell a stock after a pop, you're going to have to pay taxes on it. That's why I think the best approach for an investor to pursue statistical value is with an ETF. There are broad ETFs that you could use like VIOV or VBR from Vanguard. They're very low fee. You'll get access to the value premium and you won't have to sit there and obsess over, hey, this company reached my estimate of intrinsic value. Do I sell it? Oh, this one's down a lot. Do I need to hold on and wait? You won't have to think about any of those decisions. You just buy the ETF and let it do the the work for you. If you want to go more hardcore, there are more niche ETFs like Zig from Tobias Carlyle, who I had on the podcast, and QVAL from Alpha Architect would be another one. There's also some international versions of the Alpha Architect value ETFs. Of course, those more niche strategies are going to be more volatile than the Vanguard products, but hopefully over time, they produce better returns. Next question. It appears the Ben Graham screen on AAII was modified or revised in 2012, resulting in enhanced performance, which again raises the, the point of and backtest of value strategies based on great investors. They work great, but individual investors just don't seem to get these results. There's a lot of nuances and quarterly rebalancing and creating new portfolios at set times of the year which go unnoticed by new unsuspecting investors. So the modifications of the Ben Graham screen weren't actually done to enhance performance. My understanding is that the original screen that they used in the late 90s and 2000s had very strict cutoffs for PEs, like less than a five PE. And the problem was that the screen was so restrictive that there weren't enough stocks to fill up a portfolio. So they changed it where they have their criteria and instead of saying it needs less than a 5 PE, they just own the cheapest PEs within that universe. So I agree with you that there's lots of nuances and hard work involved in implementing a strategy like that, even if it is just mechanically buying a screen. 
And I've talked about this earlier in this podcast episode, there's taxes, there's behavior, et cetera. For that reason, I think if Ben Graham were alive today, he would probably recommend holding a value ETF. Joel Greenblatt, he actually came to a similar conclusion in his book, The Big Secret for the Small Investor. It's a great book. It's probably the least popular of Joel Greenblatt's books, but I think it's a great read and I think it has a lot of very good lessons and I'd recommend you check that out. Greenblatt saw the difficulty investors had with implementing the magic formula strategy. And he recommended that investors simply buy some form of value ETF. He actually noticed that investors who were actively choosing stocks within the magic formula screen would underperform the magic formula screen because they would get rid of the uh, stock that looked the ugliest. And often they were the ones that performed the best. And after seeing kind of the difficulty that people had with implementing it, he wrote that book. And the suggestion of that book is buy a value ETF, basically. With that said, I think the Graham Enterprising Investor Screen at AAII is a sound strategy. I just think that a DIY investor would probably be better off just buying a value ETF and taking that route. Next question why does the investing community so aggressively promote deep value and value strategies, yet quality is an even smaller or overlooked niche? Even Buffett is misquoted as being a value investor when really he is more GARP. Lots of scribes promote value, deep value to newbies, yet these strategies work over 30 to 50 years. Yet over 10 years, the result has been absolutely abysmal. Yet investors are told you must maintain discipline and value will work out. However, in the real world, this does not play out as promoted. Why does no one truly explain this in the long books written about value? Even Wes Gray and Toby Carlyle admit that value outperformed for seven years or so over a 25-year period, seven years of outperformance, indicating 18 years of underperformance. This is a very long period. Okay, so I don't think that value investing gurus aggressively promote deep value. Quite the opposite. I think most of what you're going to see are people promoting GARP strategies. So objectively looking at the data, deep value outperforms GARP. But deep value presents behavioral and tax challenges. And it's very hard to stick with during long periods of underperformance. When we're talking about mechanical strategies for buying stocks. We need to zoom out. We need to think, hey, why do these strategies work? It's not enough to simply say, hey, they work. I did a back test. You got to think about why the strategy works. And markets don't give away free money. If there were some simple trick that helped an investor beat the market, money would flow into that and it would eventually destroy it. Capitalism is going to work. So you have to think about why these premiums exist. And with value, the reason that the premium exists is because it's so hard to stick with. You have long periods of underperformance that can last for years. You have turnover. You also have heightened risk. This is a point Eugene Fama makes when he talks about the value factor. Looking at the companies in the screen, you're going to see a lot of companies with some problems and there is some higher risk involved. And you'll even see that in higher standard deviations for value strategies. Now, standard deviations and volatility isn't 
risk itself, but it's a bit of a hint that there's some risk involved. It's also worth noting that Buffett was a deep value investor in the 1950s, and that's when he actually posted his best returns in percentage terms. He bought extremely cheap stocks back then. He cited, you could read the snowball and you could go through some of those examples. Personally, he said that he's gone out and achieved 50% rates of return back in the 1950s when he was doing very deep value. I'm a little skeptical as to whether or not those situations are actually around today. Like he cites buying a very stable insurance company at a one PE. I don't think that's something that really exists, at least in the United States anymore. So that's something to keep in mind. As for the point about new investors, newbies, my suggestion would be that newbies stick to index funds. And if they do want to dabble in stock picking, it's probably better to look at a universe of higher quality companies simply because they can be held for longer periods of time. You don't have to kind of watch them like a hawk and sell as soon as they reach your estimate of intrinsic value or there's a problem with the company. I think that in the books about now, as for the point of the gurus aren't necessarily divulging whether or not these strategies underperform for long periods of time, I think that if you look at the books about value, they do mention that these strategies underperform for long periods of time. In every book I've read about mechanical value strategies, that's always a point that the author makes. But like I said before, it's these, it's this pain and the long stretches of underperformance that are the reason it works. If statistical value worked all the time, it would stop working. Money would flow into it and it, it wouldn't continue to deliver a premium over time. I agree with you that this takes crazy amounts of patience to be able to just kind of brush off 10 years of underperformance. It takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of discipline. And most people are not capable of it. Hell, I, I tried a very deep value strategy for a long period of time, and I had I had problems with it. But hey, that's the problem that'll probably continue to work over the very long run. Next question: Why can't our brains think in exponential terms over the long haul? Wow. Okay, so we're just not built to think about things in the long term as human beings. As familiar as I am with the math of compounding. It blows my mind every time I look at an example of that, when I see what actually happens with a 10 or 15% rate of return over a long period of time, like 20 years, it always blows my mind when I look at it. And we're just talking about millions of years of evolved human instincts. And those millions of years of evolved instincts are encountering markets, which are basically completely new to the human race and the grand scheme of things. And they defy all of our instincts. And the magic that you see of compounding is something that just defies our instincts. Another way that you see this is in risk aversion. So back in the day, if one of your ancestors saw something shaking in a tree, it was better to run, always be better safe than sorry. But as you know, those same instincts can lead you to sell too early and lock in permanent losses of capital. Investing just defies a lot of human instincts, and that's the reason that the typical investor usually experiences such poor investing results. There's a lot of great books on behavioral finance. A good one that I read recently was Morgan Housel's book, The Psychology of Money. It's a great place to get started with this, but it's a, definitely a fascinating topic. 
Next question. What is your daily or regular routine? Good, bad, ugly. And have you experienced trying to find a rhythm or pattern? So I get up very early in the morning around 4 a.m., usually take my dog for a walk and then start my day around that time. I like that time of day because it's extremely quiet. I can focus. I do a lot of my writing and reading around this time. I do all of this content on the side. I have a full-time job, so I have to do this stuff in the mornings, at nights, on the weekends. And then during the weekdays, I spend most of it focused on my day job. Weekends, I treat the content on the site like it's a full-time job. I'm doing it eight hours a day, Saturday, Sunday, making sure that I'm following up on companies, that I'm writing these articles, that I'm editing content for this podcast. Usually I do a lot of reading and I write some of my drafts throughout the week. And then I uh, block off time in my office on the weekends and treat this almost like it's a separate job that I can focus on. And that's pretty much my, my routine with this. Next question, how do you document your thoughts and ideas? So that's the main focus of my website. That It's a blog. It keeps me very organized and keeps me with a journal of my thoughts on different companies, companies on my watch list, companies I own. I document why I buy positions, why I sell them. And then I can go back to the blog and I can evaluate the quality of those decisions and learn from them. Writing overall helps me tremendously. It helps me evaluate old ideas that I might've been wrong about. You know, Kind of a weird thing about the human brain is that we often remember the past incorrectly. But when it's written down and you can go back to it, there's no hiding from that reality. And if you want to grow and learn, you have to face that reality. You have to face decisions that were incorrect and evaluate why they might've been incorrect. I also do the same thing in my personal life. I keep a private journal to document my thoughts and ideas, and I'll often revisit that. And I can look at thoughts I had in the past and evaluate, hey, was I right? And it helps me think. Writing helps you think through things. I forget who said it, but someone once said a quote where I don't know what I think about something until I write about it. I feel the same way. Like Writing forces you to get your thoughts organized and really figure out what do I think about this situation? What do I think about this topic? So I think it's a great thing for everyone to do. And it's absolutely critical for investing because investing is a game where you are really going to evaluate things differently in the future. And you need to write that down. And you need, and if you're going to improve as an investor, you need to really look at your mistakes objectively and evaluate them. Next question. I believe you're quite evidence data-driven based on your approach and you have a value tilt. However, you don't seem to go for special sits or deep value despite history showing that's likely where the biggest outperformance comes from. So deep value in special situations are very short-term by their very nature. Once the special situation is over with or the deep value discount has been closed, you need to move on. You have to sell it. You have to go out and you have to find a new situation. That results in a pretty high turnover portfolio. I prefer to hold things for at least at least a couple of years and preferably more than that. And the reason for that is I just want a couple of ways to win. I don't want to just own it because the special situation is resolved or the value is the value gap is closed. I also want the potential 
to benefit from a business that can grow and generate high returns on capital over the long term. So that's just my preference. I want to have longer holding periods and I don't want to have to kind of like watch the stock like a hawk and monitor every single little development. I want to own things that are pretty high quality businesses that I'm confident can work out if I were forced to coffee can them for 10 years. Another issue is just stress. So I used to do more deep value stuff. I owned a bunch of deep value situations back in March of 2020. I had a lot of mall retailers and energy companies. And that was absolutely terrifying to hold when the entire economy was getting shut down. So I sold a bunch of them in March of 2020. You could look at that as if I panic sold, but I also avoided by my calculations a nearly 60% drawdown that I would have had by holding on to those energy stocks and mall retailers. And after going through that experience and saying like, well, I had to make these judgment calls during this huge crash, I made some good decisions, some bad decisions. And after that experience, I wanted to create a new approach where I wouldn't have to go through something like that again. And that's basically what you're seeing on this blog. That's really what this whole process evolved from. I wanted to own the kind of stocks that I could confidently hold through a big macroeconomic disruption like COVID or the financial crisis. And I wouldn't have to worry about predicting it or once it happened, how I'm going to react to it and reposition the portfolio. I just did not want to play that game anymore. Another thing I noticed when I was doing more deep value stuff is that um, I realized that really the quants are right. The best way to do it quantitatively is with and is to do it quantitatively and without any human judgment. So deep value is an area where the screens absolutely outperform humans. You're dealing with screens that have very ugly outputs and the most brilliant security analysts in the world will evaluate those opportunities and they'll often discard the best performers because they look so ugly. So that's why I think it's best to leave it to a computer or an ETF. And that was very much my observation when I was doing deep value. When I really rigorously tracked my results, I was basically delivering the same performance as a small cap value ETF. So ultimately I decided, well, maybe I should probably just own small cap value ETFs as part of an asset allocation strategy. And that's what I settled on. And then for my actual stock picking, I want to own higher quality businesses that I can hold for longer periods of time. Next question, can you share your checklist process, order of checklist? Has it changed recently or are you thinking of any changes? Okay. So I have I have designed a checklist and that's really what I do on the blog. I go through every company, I research it, I try to figure out its moat, its competitive position. I look at all the quantitative data and then I plug that into a checklist. Now I can, I'm going to run through this checklist right now and explain my rationale behind each item. But for everything that's on here, it's been a result of backtesting research and it has been a result of actual experiences of going in and actually buying and selling companies. The first item on my checklist is, has the company generated consistent returns for shareholders? So my thinking is if the company hasn't made money for anyone else, 
I'm probably not going to make money on it either. If a company is basically, you see a long-term chart and it's constantly falling, you can make money in those situations, but you really need to trade them correctly. And that's not really my strong suit. So I want to see something that has actually delivered positive returns over the long run. The next item is, has the company survived previous recessions? So I operate under the assumption that recessions can just pop up out of nowhere, and it's unpredictable when they can happen. Um, so for that reason, I want to stick to companies that have demonstrated the ability to survive nasty recessions in the past. I don't need them to necessarily thrive through a recession, but I generally like to see that they maintained positive net income and free cash flow throughout the event. In other words, I wanted them to prove that the recession never threatened their survival. Next item is, is the industry in secular decline. So I used to buy really bombed out companies and industries that were in secular decline, like mall retailers, um, assuming that I would be able to get more compelling value. The reality is I could never actually get that to work. I spent time buying industries like the mall retailers and the situations really worked out. So for that reason, I like to stick to industries that actually have favorable long-term prospects. And I like to make sure that they're not in some type of secular decline. The next item is the stock cheap on an absolute basis and a relative basis. So I only want to buy companies that have attractive valuation multiples. In an absolute basis, what that means is I'm getting solid free cash yields and enterprise yields. At the very least, I would like to see this yield exceeding the 10-year treasury. Hopefully, it's to a very large degree they exceed the 10-year treasury. In addition to that, I want it to be cheap relative to its history. So if something always trades with a 20% free cash yield, then it might not actually be a compelling bargain. Another possibility could be that the company is in some type of cyclical upswing and eventually that's going to completely fall apart and the free cash yield will normalize. So that for that reason, I look at trending and price to sales and price to book. And I prefer to buy when the company is at a discount to its normal historical multiples. Next checklist item, does the company have a moat? So it generally takes a few years for an investment to actually work out. So I need to know I'm dealing with a company that can actually survive for a few years, at least. So I look for situations where the company has a moat so I can safely hold it for a long period of time. There are lots of different ways to look at moats, but I think the basic question I'm trying to answer is, can this business be easily disrupted by technology, a competitor, by changing preferences? The reality is the capitalism works. Most good businesses are going to be disrupted. And the only way to safely hold something for years is in a company with a moat where you have some reasonable assurances that they're not going to get disrupted over that holding period. And the next one is, does return on equity exceed 10% without the use of heavy leverage? So I recently had Todd Winning on the podcast. And he gave a great way to think about that. He gave me a great way to think about this. So companies are machines that you put money into and you take money out of. So you need to think about the cost of operating the machine. And then you need to think about how much you paid for the machine and then how much you're getting out of this machine. So over time, an investor is basically going to earn that return on capital. So 
I look for a minimum of a 10% ROE. I have a 10% return hurdle. On top of that, I want to make sure that they're generating those returns without a lot of leverage. Leverage is pretty dangerous. You could look at a backtest of companies, for instance, with high debt to equity ratios, low interest coverage, you know, poor Altman Z scores, and that's going to be a pretty horrific backtest. <laughs> so I want to avoid strategies that have extreme drawdowns. And I think a great way to avoid that is to avoid very levered up companies. The reality is if you buy highly levered companies that can use that to generate extremely high returns in equity, that can work for a long period of time, but eventually something is going to happen where cash flow dries up and then that company's entire existence can be put on the line. Next item is, is the moat currently attacked? Is the attack likely to be successful? Are you being paid for this threat? So this is a newer checklist item that I've brought, and it comes from my failed experience with Intel, where I bought Intel in 2020, early 2021. The investment didn't actually work out. And it was because Intel's moat is being assaulted by Taiwan Semiconductor. Taiwan Semiconductor is doing a better job at making chips than Intel. So I'm not opposed to buying companies whose moats are under attack, but I think that if you're going to do that, you should get a truly compelling price. Intel was cheap, cheap-ish, but it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was a compelling price back then. And I think the combination of the moat attack plus the price resulted in that investment not working particularly well. My next checklist item would be, is the company financially healthy? So I only want to buy companies that have strong financial health. This originates from backtesting, which I mentioned earlier, from key metrics about what drives drawdowns. I noted I I listed items that I observed in my own backtesting that made drawdowns worse. So well, those things that I really look at are the debt to equity ratio, interest coverage, the Altman Z score, which is a statistical measure to determine bankruptcy risk. I want to see a healthy M score. So that's a metric that looks for signs of earnings manipulation. For instance, it would have kept you out of General Electric in the late 90s. It would have kept you out of Enron. So that's a pretty good statistical tool. I want them to be self-financing, generating positive free cash flow. I don't want them to be dependent on issuing stock or debt. I want them their own operations to be able to keep the business stable and going. And I also want them to have a consistent history of having returns on invested capital that exceed their cost of capital. The next item is, is management sketchy? So I'm looking for businesses with compelling economics that don't need star managers. With that said, it can't hurt. I'm not opposed to having a star manager, but I'm saying it's something I, I don't depend on. So what I what I look for is simply, are they sketchy? I'm a big believer that character is destiny. If you're dealing with a scumbag, they're going to lead to bad outcomes. So I like to look at the manager and see that they're not shady. They're not a poor character. And I want to avoid getting in business, avoid getting in business with people like that because eventually they're going to blow up. My next question is, the next checklist item is, can the stock deliver a 10% CAGR for the next decade? So pretty simply, 
I don't think investing in an individual stock is worth it unless you can mathematically determine if you can exceed a 10% CAGR for 10 years. So I like Jack Bogle's method of valuation, and he had a very simple way to think about this. An investor earns growth in the business, you get your shareholder yield, and then you get change in multiples. And you can use those three items to calculate your return, what your return is going to look like over the long run. So I want to see, I'm going to go through that exercise mathematically with every investment I make with some and see what my assumptions are and see what kind of rate of return I can actually earn on this stock over the long run. I want to see mathematically how I can get there. So the ideal kind of situation I'm looking for is something with decent growth, growth prospects. It could simply be in line with nominal GDP, but I want to see, hey, can they grow at maybe a 5% rate? On top of that, I want to see Am I going to get some shareholder yield in the form of buybacks and dividends? And is the business resilient enough where it can continue to generate solid buybacks and dividends? And what's my yield there? What kind of dividend growth can I expect over the long run? Then on top of that, I like to see a depressed multiple. So that gives me a way, another way that I can win, where if the multiple mean reverts and it goes back to a more normal level, that gives me another source of potential return. So I want to see the combination of all of these things, growth, shareholder yield, and multiple appreciation to be something that can exceed 10%. Ideally, the growth and shareholder yield alone can get me to 10%, and then any multiple appreciation is just kind of icing on the cake. And then my final checklist item is, would I be comfortable if I couldn't sell the stock for 10 years? So that question distills all of my other checklist items. I want to find a business that I'm confident has a moat. It can survive for a decade. I'm comfortable with owning this business for a decade. I want them to have some recession resilience. So I'm sure over a 10-year period, we're going to face some kind of recession. I want to make sure this company has the ability to withstand that. I'm not going to invest in a company for 10 years that doesn't have high financial quality, low debt, that type of thing. And then lastly, I want to get at them at an attractive price. If you pay too much for even a good business, you could have a 10-year period of time where you lose money. That happened with Microsoft and Cisco Systems, both great businesses, circa 2000. They were both dead money for over 10 years because the valuations were so stretched when investors bought them in year 2000. So I think in terms of whether or not I would be scared to coffee can the stock for 10 years, like just buy it and not look at it for 10 years, I'm probably not going to actually hold it for 10 years, but I like to think about it in those terms. Is this something that I'd actually be comfortable getting stuck in? Um, so that's it for today's questions. I'm definitely going to do more of these in the future. If you have any questions, you can email me at valuestockgeek at substack.com. And I'm happy to answer any questions you might have. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and we'll definitely do more of them in the future. And again, if you want to sign up for updates, you can go to www.securityanalysis.org. Thank you very much. And have a great day. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.